Welcome to the Making Note podcast. I'm your host, Avish Bama, and I'm also the founder and CEO of a San Francisco-based startup called Sonia.ai. We're building a note-taking assistant that captures intelligence from meetings to help take notes, summarize, and handle follow-ups for you. Our mission is to help leverage AI to give you your time back. And this podcast is about getting leverage in life. So we'll be diving into three areas, health, wealth, and happiness. In today's episode, we talk to Alec Ross. Alec is currently running for governor of the state of Maryland. And prior to this, he worked for Hillary Clinton as well as Barack Obama. Uh, And he's also an accomplished author of a book called The Industries of the Future. I've known Alec for a few years, and uh, this dates back to the days when we were getting started off with a cryptocurrency company back before it was cool. Alec was one of the first people I saw that um, worked in or around Washington that uh, really understood the technology and was an advocate for it. So we built a relationship where he advised our company. And since then, I am not an overly political person, but I've followed his career and have gotten to know him. And he's, I would say, one of the most promising Democratic candidates in the country. And so we talk about his background and and his campaign, but then we also talk about some of the parallels between running a successful campaign and building a successful company. Here's Alec. So you and I first met in 2013, if you remember, way back in the day. And um, if you remember, I was in the Bitcoin space, I was um, trying to evangelize Bitcoin and we needed a lot of help um, at the policy level because we were trying to get a banking partner. That's right. And we, we needed people to actually lobby financial regulators for it. And uh, our mutual friend, Shiel, put us in touch. Shiel Tile. Shiel Tile. Young Dynamo. Uh, yeah, he's awesome. Um, and he had put me in touch and he said, because uh, he was one of the early investors in us, and he said, uh, you got to meet with Alec. And I looked at your background initially, and I have to admit, I was like skeptical. I was like, what is this guy going to be able to do for the company? Um, and and it turns out you were incredibly uh, savvy when it came to tech and um, very progressive when it came to um, policies. And uh, not just that, but you became an early advocate for Bitcoin. That's right. And we co-wrote a paper for um, Hillary Clinton at the time. To help her understand what Bitcoin was. That's right. And I was I was kind of taken away by it because, uh, or taken aback by it, I should say, because uh, I just remember thinking most people in government uh, and and most politicians were very dismissive, and um, and Bitcoin was initially uh, you know labeled as the anti-government uh, type of technology. Promulgated by criminals, evildoers, people seeking to undermine state sovereignty and the rule of law. That's right. That's right. And uh, you were one of the first ones to see through that and really understand its its core technology. Right. And as I started talking to other people in the valley, uh, they would bring you up: Charlie Songhurst and Reed Hoffman, and um, and I was I was um, Nicholas Bergrun. And I like very quickly understood that you are, I wouldn't even say amongst the few, you're the only person that I've, I've come across that is, uh, you know, so plugged into, um, you know, a political career, but also plugged into tech. I wish there were more of us. 
Yeah, I actually think there's some really negative consequence to the fact that it that there are so few people who actually understand the technological forces shaping the future, but also understand public policy. I, I actually think that we're dealing with a lot of the negative effect of people who are empowering government actually not getting it. Right. So I, I I appreciate the praise. It makes me feel good. But boy, I wish I were. I wish I were among thousands. Yeah, <laughs> we'd all be we all we'd all be better off. I think the economy would be working better. I think we'd have more efficiency in government. I think that we would have a lot less cluelessness coming out of government if if I had more company. Yeah, uh, and and uh, so I'm curious, like what initiated this um, kind of bifurcation of focus for you? Uh, or I guess dual um, interest for you uh, to kind of pair the policy and and um, political aspect of things with tech and innovation. Um, so I look at it's funny I look at technology not you know not from the stamp not from the perspective of an entrepreneur. I don't really care what the little pieces do inside a machine. I care about the machine's impact on society. I was actually a medieval history major in college. I studied, uh, I, remember I spent a year studying at l'Università di Bologna, the in University Italy. of Bologna in Italy and studying yeah. medieval history. And the more I've studied history, you know, it's interesting, you know, you read textbooks, social studies textbooks, history textbooks, and it's kind of like, all this time is spent on, you know, oh, the succession of James the Third by James the Fourth, and this family fighting that family, and, and all this stuff. But what I came to understand studying history is that that stuff was fairly inconsequential. What was much, much, much more consequential uh, in the world over thousands of years has been technology. Technology has done more to reshape society. It has done more to impact the health and well-being of the world than any charismatic le leader, than any, you know, centuries-long dynasty, than any empire. And so I've studied this intensively, the impact of science and technology shaping the past. And then I came to really appreciate what it was doing for our present and what it would do for our future. And so my, my focus on the intersection of technology and public policy really came from studying all that it had done over the past many centuries, from the onset of industrialization to, you know, helping people live substantially longer lives. I mean, I think I'm a young guy. I'm 45 years old. The day I was born, the day I was born 45 years ago, global life expectancy was 58. Hmm. Today, it's 72. Those are development because of developments in technology, principally in science, secondarily. And so I, I guess I became obsessed with technology because I think that nothing has more impact on us as humans and on our humanity. And um, and what got you interested in in politics early on? And and just to to, to um, quickly summarize you after school you went to teach for america that's right i was a sixth grade teacher at booker t washington middle school in west baltimore so any of you who have seen the wire uh oh, yeah. that that takes place in real places in baltimore the first season of the wire the low rises if you were a sixth grader who who lived in the low rises you are my student it's a couple hundred yards from oh, where okay. i taught Freddie Gray, you know, people may remember the riots a couple years ago in Baltimore. Freddie Gray lived one neighborhood over from where I from where I taught. So yeah, that's where I taught. Wow, um, and, and so so 
how how'd you land there number one and mm-hmm. kind of how'd you at the time did you know okay i i'm aspiring to kind of go into run for office at some point yeah you know so how i landed there was literally through an envelope um when i decided i want to join teach for america at the time teach for america was in about 20 places and when you filled out your application it listed the 20 places and there were three categories you could say a place was highly desirable desirable or not an option and you know when i applied to teach for america then the percentage of white men with degrees in the humanities who were who were accepted it was like it was well south of five percent so look i said i would go just about anywhere and i put baltimore as a highly desirable place to be so when i got my acceptance letter from Teach for America to teach in Baltimore, it, it it literally just placed me there, and that, of course, that you know the the luck of the draw has had a lot of consequence in my life. Was it um, as difficult teaching in that kind of environment as it's portrayed on TV? I wish it weren't, but it is. I mean, look, I I was teaching at the height of the crack wars. I had eleven year olds in my classroom, and I had sixteen year olds in my classroom. I had thirty eight kids in a teeny tiny little classroom and I taught for a couple of years and some great things came out. I saw some wonderful things happen. I saw some wonderful development, but I also saw some heartbreaking things. I mean, I had two 11 year old girls get pregnant. Wow. Um, let, me, let me tell you what I was not doing when I was 11 years old. And so, and these girls and invariably they were having sex with 18, 19, 20 year old young men who were getting them pregnant. Their parents didn't really care. You know, they were indifferent. I mean, I met one grandmother who's a 26-year-old grandmother. Uh, so it was tough. Yeah, I mean, look, anybody who sort of sugarcoats this is not telling the entire truth. I saw spectacular genius there. Uh, there were wonderfully strong uh, young people who have gone on to good careers, but I also saw a lot of mess. I saw a lot of destroyed lives at an early age. Was it hard not to get jaded? You know, it's not jaded. I guess I'm my DNA doesn't allow me to get jaded. I'm not a I'm not a jaded or cynical guy by nature. Um, it's more beaten down. It is physically difficult to teach in an environment where you're you're automatically going to have more failure than success, just by virtue of the surroundings and by virtue of you know just the number of kids who you're trying to help and you try to you've only got them for an hour a day and you, they come in waves. So that's physically debilitating, but I don't get jaded. I don't get cynical. I get mad before I get jaded or cynical. I mean, even in with as as screwed up as American politics are right now, I'm not cynical. I'm not jaded. I just get sort of jaw clenched mad. When you're you're in that kind of an environment, part of it is like what you're seeing on the ground and um, kind of the dysfunction of of what you're having to deal with. And then when you try to make a change and you're advocating for it, then you have to go and see uh, the other part, which is at the systemic level and at the policy level, the issues there. And I'm sure there are jaded people there because it's really hard to get things moving. Oh, of course. Yeah. And, and the reason why I did begin to focus somewhat on politics, though it was a long road from the classroom to getting engaged politically. But the reason why I got interested in policy was because because the systems that are in place uh, in our communities, wealthy, middle income, and low income, are substantially shaped by politics and policy. It's sort of de rigueur. It's kind of a, a cool thing for 
people in Silicon Valley or people in tech to sort of dismiss politics. They say, oh, I don't like politics and I don't like politicians. Oh, I don't care about that. We're, we're reshaping the world more than they are. Right. I got news for you. We all live with the consequence of our politics. And I actually think that there's a little bit of infantilism um, among techies who just completely divorce themselves from the world of politics and policy. Because it's kind of like, well, in, in your own way, you are you are shielding yourself from, from a much more real world mm-hmm. um, that's out there. And so I got involved not because I love politics. I actually don't love politics. I don't even know if I like politics. But what I do understand is its consequence. And so, you know, I got involved in policy and politics uh, because these because what happens there really, really matters. And, you know, fast forward decades in the future, what happens with Bitcoin, what happens with cryptocurrencies more broadly, for example, is going to have as much or more to do with what government does and does not do than it does more likely than not with developments than with technical developments. Right. And, and so after Teach for America, where'd you end up going from there? Yeah, so I, I, I spent the better part of how long? Ten, 10 years in social entrepreneurship. So right. I, I did community development work. I started a, a nonprofit in a basement. Um, and you know what? Listeners ought to just take what I say from this point with a grain of salt. Because if I were smart, obviously, if I, if I were really smart, I would have started my company as a for-profit. But I was this little um, sort of do-gooder, do-gooder 28-year-old, I started a nonprofit in a basement that was focused on bridging the digital divide, bringing internet access, educational online content, and technology skills training into poor communities. And we went from being, you know, four knuckleheads in a basement to having a really successful global organization uh, over the course of my eight years there. Uh, It was all about technology for empowerment. You know, it's, it's very fashionable right now to talk about all the harm that technology is doing uh, in in terms of the automation of labor or increased inequality or this or that. But I I actually tend to view technology short of utopian. I'm not a utopian, but I do view it as overwhelmingly empowering. And from my standpoint, if, if young people have an affinity for technology, if we really invest in them, it doesn't matter how much money's in their wallet or how much melanin is in their skin they can be a part of the industries of the future. And so I started my social enterprise really with a vision of maximizing the potential of tech, of technology for good. And it was through that that I got to know Barack Obama. Right. And when he ran for president, I was recruited to run technology policy for that first presidential campaign. What, what was that like? Like at the time, he was relatively unknown uh, compared to um, oh yes yeah, absolutely I mean, he was um, an underdog by all counts and he had probably the most successful campaign at that point to date um, given his leveraging of social media and um, you know building awareness and and then also fundraising yeah it's amazing so the, the first of all the campaign it was great I mean we worked our asses off we worked so hard for two years but it didn't feel like we were working that hard because we so believed in what we were doing i mean it for as much as much self-loathing as there was in the 2016 presidential campaign 
you know, as as negative as it seemed like everybody felt throughout that campaign, but Democrats, Republicans and independents, like we were true believers uh, in the Obama campaign. And I think that while, you know, the Obama presidency was short of utopian, he was a gosh darn good president. I feel like that that faith we had in him was overwhelmingly validated. And one of the cool things about the campaign was that it was not afraid to make of make mistakes of commission rather than omission. You know, all the the geniuses who propelled the technology strategy on that campaign, they were all in their 20s, yeah. all in their 20s. And they'd get a good idea and they'd get licensed to go out and try it. And so in many respects, the way campaigns are are run using technology today flows in part from the the textbook that was really first written on that campaign. Yeah, and I'm curious, um, like when you've you've studied countless campaigns now, um, and you've been a part of, uh, you know, helping um, uh, Obama, and then also helping Hillary Clinton, and you saw the the toll that it takes on a candidate's family. That's like a real burden that anyone that goes into this field has to take on. Um, uh, where like you're exposing your family to uh, unwarranted ridicule and you're putting them in the spotlight you sure um, are. and and like that's that's just a real risk of of any time you're going to this field because it's going to impact the lives of the people that you love the most and not just for a finite amount of time like they are going to be impacted indefinitely um, and I'm curious, uh, like when you're going through that kind of evaluation and you're figuring out, okay, is this something I really want to take on? Um, like, like w- what is that process like? Well, I tell you first, I, m- I married the right woman. Yeah. So going back to that sixth grade classroom of Booker T. Washington middle school, I actually married the math teacher across the hall. Oh, no kidding. Right. Like I was teaching social studies and English. She was teaching math. She was also a Teach for America teacher. I had come out of Northwestern University. She came out of, Mich- out of the University of Michigan. We fell in love. We got married. So the first thing is I, I married the right woman. And she, look, she's tough. You know, 23 years later, she's still teaching in Baltimore public schools. So she's tough. Uh, look, when you do run for office, and I'm running for governor of Maryland now, when you do run for office, you don't just put yourself out there. You put your families out there. And Felicity, my wife, definitely gets pissed off every now and then when she sees people saying mean things on Facebook that are just like factually inaccurate. And, you know, she has to keep herself from getting on there and responding. Our politics are really ugly right now. It actually it hasn't hasn't always been super ugly, super ugly. Like when you think about kids, for example, um, you know, for the longest time, the children of people in politics and government were completely le- left alone. And that's really not true now. Social media has, I think, in many respects, gotten incredibly dark. Yep. Where people will say and do things uh, online that they would never do in real life. Or maybe some of them would do it in real life. But it's gotten pretty dark. It's gotten pretty nasty. And you do put your family out there. Yeah, and it can be incredibly traumatizing like for anybody that's growing up that is all of a sudden in the spotlight 
at a young age and they don't know how to deal with that. And and so I'm sure that was like a real conversation that you have to have with your wife. Yeah, it's about, you know, and for, from our standpoint, the good news is we have three kids, a 15-year-old boy, 12-year-old girl, 10-year-old boy. The good news is they have absolutely no curiosity about what I'm doing. They find it incredibly boring. <laughs> They found what I did before boring, too. Like, I wrote this book, The Industries of the Future. It was a New York Times bestseller, translated in 18 languages. My kids, like, one star on Amazon. They think that <laughs> they think that, that stuff is so boring. So the good news is that they think it's boring, so they actually don't opt in yeah. to the information flow around my candidacy. So they're a little isolated from it, and I'm kind of glad that they are. Yeah. Uh, speaking of your children, I read recently about Sawyer. Yes. And um, my 10 year old boy. And yeah. And he, in some ways, um, the story kind of parallels Jimmy Kimmel's uh, story with with um, with what he had to go through with um, his his newborn. And, and the medical case is completely different, but it revolves around health care. Um, and I'm just curious if um, you can shed some light on that. Sure. So the. You know, my son, uh, earlier this year, in fact, right around the time that I was announcing I was running for governor, uh, because we have great health care, and, you know, my wife was has been a great curator of, you know, who my kids' doctors are and what have you, my son was having his annual checkup with a, you know, a woman, a pediatrician who got her training from Johns Hopkins, like total badass doctor, spends 30 minutes on him, and she finds these lumps in his, in his uh, thyroid. And, you know, instead of going through some wildly bureaucratic process, because we've got the best doctors and the best health insurance, within like 24 hours, he was at Johns Hopkins getting a series of tests. Uh, What then happened was they said, all right, well, what we really need to do now is this really expensive, I think it was like $6,000 genetic test. And if he tests positive for this genetic, for this genetic mutation, it's really bad given what we see here. Because we had great health insurance, you know, he took the test immediately thereafter. Sadly, he did test positive for this genetic mutation. Uh, I'll spare you the details, but this is not good news. But again, because we had great health insurance and, you know, a high level of health literacy, uh, we were able to get him to the world's best surgeon uh, who focuses on children at the Children's Hospital Hospital of Philadelphia. He had surgery. You know, he had his thyroids taken out. And long story short, while he still has this genetic mutation, and while that still will make it difficult for him potentially in the future, the short-term prognosis is good. So long story short, what this means is because we had great health insurance, a high level of health literacy at the parental level, and great doctors, my son is alive. He is doing well. If he had an HMO that didn't pay for this genetic test, that did not allow him to get nearly $200,000 worth of medical treatments uh, at little cost to us, then who knows what would have happened. And what scares me, what makes me kind of sick, is the idea that because I've been successful professionally, and am able to pay for Blue Cross Blue Shield health insurance, my son is alive and doing well. But if he were, you know, just a normal kid in a normal family, middle income even, God forbid if he were low income, right, uncovered, 
you know, what would have happened. And so I do, one thing that I don't like about America right now is the degree to which healthcare has become so wildly divergent in terms of care, depending on who mom and dad are. And, and this happened right at the start of your decision yeah, run? Yeah, this was going on right around, you know, shortly after I announced. It was a, you know, made for an interesting first two months of my race, where obviously my head was in more than one place. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really, really difficult. But, you know, it also allows me to run for office with sort of reckless abandon, too. Like the fact that Sawyer's doing well now, like, I, I kind of can't lose, right? You know, bigger perspective. My ten-year-old little boy is doing well. I, I have, I shouldn't complain about a gosh darn thing. And it also gives me some zeal for saying, "All right, you know, what can we do to enable the rise of the rest? What can we do to help make sure that more people from more zip codes have the kind of access to healthcare or to health literacy that my wife and I do?" And, and like at the time, were, were you ever thinking, well, I should pause this campaign uh, to focus on Sawyer? Well, that would have been the case if if there had been some different results in the uh, from the surgery. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, I left the trail when he was when he was in surgery, and obviously, um, I probably wasn't at my best at the beginning of the campaign when I was. You know, I cared a heck of a lot more about how he was doing than you know, sort of the me, me, me talk of a, of a candidate asking for support. Um, so, you know, thankfully I didn't have to do that. Um, but again, my, you know, my run for governor feels incredibly small and unimportant, uh, relative to the health and well-being of my little boy. Sure. Um, you obviously have a lot of experience dealing with both tech startups because you've advised and work with lots of companies before as well as running political campaigns um what like wh- does this give you an unfair edge i'm, I'm just <laughs> curious like how, how there are you- some real similarities so yeah. i i do think that in a tech startup you have to have a sense of mission when i go to a startup and i see and it's a nine to five um I, it tends not to work i mean yeah. people have to people have to really believe in the product believe in the service believe in the and the company. When somebody is there who is mercenary, who is there hoovering up options, you know, trying to accelerate vesting schedules, trying, you know, like mission is, I believe, at the heart of both the startup and of a campaign. That in turn really impacts talent. So great talent will go to a startup uh, if the startup has the right product. Similarly, great talent will go to a political campaign if the product, the candidate, is special. And if the product isn't special, if the candidate isn't special, you tend to end up with a lot of B players, a lot of mediocrity. And in the same way in which a startup, looking at human capital, looking at talent, having a top 3 to 5% player on your team is exponentially better than having multiple people in the top 50%. It's the same thing in a tech startup and in a campaign. You do have to ha- have, you know, that sort of otherness yeah. in terms of talent. And there's also this thing around pacing. So when you are in a startup, you are you're not just chasing a market and you're not just running against, 
you know, larger technological forces that are also there, you're also running against the clock. You know, being the CEO of a tech startup, you are, you have your eye on the clock uh, because you're really looking at the money that you're burning. You have to achieve liftoff. You, ha- you have to have built a product well enough and gotten a, a far enough along and hit your hit your metrics so that it can take off on schedule. Same with a campaign. Like you, you are running against the clock. Right. Um, the money will run out. The election will take place. Other people will fly by you if you don't achieve liftoff. So the clock is always ticking in the head of a candidate, and the clock is always ticking in the head of a CEO. Yeah, um, and, and so, like with with your campaign, as I've seen it build steam up, you're you're kind of taking in. The, when's the election? It's in November. It's, so the the primary is in June of 2018, okay. and the and the general is in November of next year. So it's a pretty long campaign cycle. It is multi year campaign cycle. It is yeah. So from start to finish, for me, it would be about a year and a half. And it's just go go go, pretty every much. Day. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. No, it is go go. It is a, it is a. It's like running a half marathon at the speed of a 5k (laughs) i like that analogy what are the biggest challenges fundraising right now like like i'm guessing that getting the building the movement piece is a a factor of numbers but then you also need there's power law distribution because the vast majority of your capital that you raise is going to be coming from the, the the few that are either in in the valley or on wall street or uh, what are the cases? Yeah, fundraising in politics, everything everybody hears about money in politics, it's true. It's kind of insane. When I got into this race, I did not realize how much of my time would go into fundraising. Yeah. Um, it's insane. Uh, and it's wrong. And it's really screwed up. And it keeps people who are really talented from running for office. Like, if you can't self-fund, uh, which I can't, I can't drop five to 15 million dollars of my own money right uh to run for office if you can't do that what that means is that you spend a minimum of 30 hours a week asking people for money and unlike being in a startup where you only need a couple investors you might pitch a hell of a lot but then you get your lead investor and you fill out the round that's not the way it works you know so for example if i have to raise let's throw a number out there $3 million. And the maximum contribution per individual is $6,000. Mm-hmm. That Think about how many contributions that is. It's a lot. Of, yeah. That is, that is, what, 500 people right. writing $6,000 checks. And as you know, it's you're probably not going to get 500 people writing $6,000 checks. You're going to get some people who write thousand dollar checks you're going to get some people who write one hundred dollar checks you're going to get some people who write twenty dollar checks so whatever it is you've got a bill you are you are by your nature by the nature of the law having to raise money in relatively small amounts yep um and the value of a six thousand dollar contribution is exponentially more valuable than a hundred dollar contribution so you spend a lot more time talking to people who are capable of six, giving $6,000 than you do talking to people who give $100. And what this does is it has a skewing effect 
on who you spend time with. And this kind of screws up our democracy. I mean, you spend all your time trying to talk to rich people and get them to give you money. So you're inherently talking about the issues that they most care about. And so my response to this has just been to sort of put my foot down. And yes, I will raise money, but I'm also going to remember who I'm doing this for and why I'm doing it. And I'm just going to spend time in communities in communities and with people, uh, you know, what, who can't give me money and who I'm not going to ask for money, um, but who I ought to be running, who I'm seeking to serve, right? Yeah, and I commend you for going into this because uh, this often happens in Silicon Valley. Entrepreneurs behind the scenes um, and, and in private one-on-one conversations will talk about the secrets of fundraising and what went wrong and which investors are, um, you know, assholes. But nobody talks about it um, in the press. And right. similarly, I'm guessing it's the exact same in, in politics. That's right, in part because candidates are dependent. Right. Candidates are dependent on their funders. And, and you know, look, I'm not criticizing the funders. What I'm saying is that the, the process is actually broken. When so much of running for office comes to begging for money, asking for money, like that's really screwed up. It's not like this in other countries. When you are running to become a member of parliament in the U.K., you don't spend a year and a half running. You spend a couple months running. And you mm-hmm. don't raise millions of pounds. You know, you raise tens of thousands of pounds. And you don't spend your time on the phone with millionaires asking them for money. You spend your time in town halls. And that's a far better model than the American model. Yep. And so I do think we really need to repair our democracy. And when you when it's like this, what you get are, you know, the likes of, of Donald Trump as your president. Sure. Yeah. And and I was reading the other day that in order for him to be kind of dethroned uh, in the next election, uh, people are saying, oh, well, we need billionaires to step up and and run uh, like Mark Cuban or um, Howard Schultz or um, uh, Mike Bloomberg. And then everyone's talking, the Democratic Party in general, um, everyone's talking about, oh, well, it's got to be reinvented to now compete in this um, disillusionment uh, uh, of a campaign that he's running where he'll just throw out blatant lies to attract attention. That's Uh, right. And this is, look, and this is why entrepreneurs, people who work in startups, this is when they turn off the TV. This is when they turn back to their computer screens and say, you know what, politics is fucked up. I'm yep. going to go back to building a company. So you see, it's this I'm is, totally this, guilty of that, by the way. Of like, course. Yeah. It's no, it's a logical look. It's a totally logical. And oh, by the way, probably physically and emotionally healthy response. Right. You don't want to just sit there and ingest, you know, really toxic content, political content. You know, what I'm choosing to do is even if for just one brief shining moment is to say, you know what? All right, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm not going to like chitter chatter over this at a dinner party. I'm going to like throw myself in and try to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I'm going to, let me be undiplomatic for a second. This is a case too, where I do oftentimes find fault with the tech community. You know, I think the tech community tends to talk a much bigger game than it plays. So I feel like, you know, discussion of reinventing democracy or reinventing politics or getting entrepreneurs into positions of power. Like if we took all the energy that went into dinner parties 
um, went into sort of people socializing over this content versus the the actual expenditure of effort actually doing something about it. You know, there's just a there's a lot there's a there's a lot more um, there's a lot more heat than light coming out of this. There there is a lot of um, kind of uh, social friction amongst the tech community. I, I remember I was, um, you know, we've got this event tonight and I was sharing your, uh, th- the event details with some of my peers and I ran into them at a conference, uh, uh, a few days later and they said, since when are you getting into politics? And I, I, I kind of observed the emotional response that I have. And all of a sudden I, I had to say, no, 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 like Alex is a good guy and he's been extremely helpful. And um, and I kind of realized that I was trying to rationalize yes. the reason why I should care and the reason in turn why this other person should care. But that's kind of like the default here where people say, all right, well, this is too much. I'm going to tune out and um, I'll see you guys in four years. Well, and I'll tell you, there's consequence here. You know, yeah. there is there is consequence to this. Um you know, I think, for example, when I think about the tech community, you know, it is a, a wildly diverse community. You know, people, Silicon Valley is, when you go to Silicon Valley, I feel like a lot of the time you're visiting the United Nations. I mean, people come from all over the world uh, to imagine and invent the future in America's technology industry. The policies being proposed and pushed out by the Trump administration would basically say to brown people the world around, you're no longer welcome here. Right. You know, 40% of the Fortune 500 was founded by uh, immigrants or the children of immigrants. America's special sauce, like if you want to know what our secret is, our secret is these waves of immigration that, you know, there's a new demographic every 20 to 30 years. And it is a striving demographic, you know, that comes in and is fiercely entrepreneurial and uh, imagines and invents the future. You know, it was the British and then it was the Germans and then it's Italian. You know, it comes in waves. And if you stop that, you it's, it's the end of America's secret sauce. And oh, by the way, it also has just major short term consequences in the tech community. Sure. Yeah. I mean, for, for us specifically, like we have, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time recruiting. Yes, and so I I talk to a lot of PhD students in computer science and grad students in in computer science that are immigrants and can't work because of how fucked up the visa issues are. In it's this unbelievable, country. and yeah, and it's, and it's getting worse. Yeah, and it's really really unfortunate because um, that talent is going to go elsewhere, and that talent are, is going to build economic value elsewhere. Um, and that affects, um, you know, the, the future of the country. No, and look, this may seem obvious to listeners of this podcast, but what's interesting is I've been out there politicking, as I've been out there talking to people, I do see that we are, as a community, isolated from most Americans. You know, most Americans really do blame Mexicans and Muslims they blame Bangalore for the problems in Baltimore. They right. blame, you know, people with brown skin for the problems of people with white skin. And that may seem incredibly regressive and wrongheaded to us, 
But a lot of people who are fed content from Fox News every day, who are fed content from right-wing talk radio, who are reading what is legitimately fake news uh, on the internet, sometimes promulgated by the president of the United States, you know, we may have an ability to curate our information consumption, um, but most of America does a, most of America curates it in a way where they get things in their heads that are just kind of sick and wrong. Right. Um, one last thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, before I know you've got to run soon is gun control. Yes. And um, this is an issue that I just cannot understand uh, why it isn't being resolved. Um, it seems so simple, yet it's so convoluted i'm curious like where are we right now with it and Mm -hmm. what actually needs to happen right uh in order for us to actually solve this problem because you come from a place baltimore where there's a lot of violence but you've been dealing with it firsthand for uh the majority of your life so where are we with gun control we're nowhere yeah i mean we have mass slaughter i mean we have mass slaughter of kids after Sandy Hook, what happened? Nothing. El Squado, niente, nada, nothing, no, no, nine, nothing. Uh, why? Because, because there are powerful political forces in place to punish anybody who comes out for reasonable gun safety measures. Uh, and, and, you know, again, money. Like if somebody comes out with a really strong gun safety proposal, millions of dollars will be spent against them by the National Rifle Association. That seems bananas. But there isn't a movement to countervail that. Mike Bloomberg does it a little bit. The NRA focuses on this issue to a substantially larger degree than Mike Bloomberg can. And so for all of the outrage um, that sort of right-minded Americans have about the lack of gun safety controls, there isn't sort of an anti-NRA out Mm. there. And so this is a case, too, when I think about all those people with all those zeros in their bank accounts, lots and lots of zeros in their bank accounts, who are saddened by gun violence. My question is, all right, what are you doing about it? If you really care, like, why not start a political organization Maybe not as powerful as the NRA, but one that can compete with the NRA. And oh, by the way, you're on the right side of history. So you don't necessarily need to match the, the NRA dollar for dollar. So this is, this is a case where I do think we need a new patriotism. We need a new patriotism where people will be willing um, to look at that bank account and draw down on it a little bit and begin to invest in things um, that will make for a healthier safer, saner society. Um, one final question for, for me. If, if you end up as governor of Maryland, um, are there prospects of you uh, running for president at some point? Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> I'm going to now, I mean, you're going to make me sound like a politician. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just focused on running for governor. You I know, you. look, I am a, I came into this at the beginning. It was sort of an insurgent run for governor. But it's gone really well. So I'm now sort of shoulder to shoulder with the other candidates at the top of the field. Um, and if I take my eye off that, then I'm going to lose. So I am just 
focused on running for governor of Maryland. Well, I know that you're a, a, a Ravens fan, but that was a very Bill Belichickian type answer. So. <laughs> there we go. Well, Bill Belichick wins a lot of Super Bowls, so I won't mind that at all. Yeah. All right, Alec, thanks for um, coming by today. Um, I'm rooting for you, and I know a bunch of other people here in Silicon Valley are as well. And um, I will, uh, is there any way that people can find you online? Absolutely. Go to alecross.com. You can find me in all the usual places at Alec J. Ross on Twitter, Alec Ross on Facebook. You can find me. All right. Thanks, Alec. Thank you. And that concludes this episode. For more information about our guest today or to see a transcript of this episode, check out makingnote.com. And if you'd like to learn more about how to take less notes and be more present in meetings, check out sonia.ai.